Ladies and gentlemen, warning, spoilers ahead. Dave? I'm Wayne Stellini. And I'm a Philip Hunting, and welcome to Fred Watch, where we view and review everything from the mainstream to the obscure. We absolutely do, mate. And we've had to pause our regular season due to COVID-19 lockdown restrictions. So thank you for joining us for our Fred Watch lockdown special. Staying together while we're keeping ourselves apart, welcome back, Kendall Richardson. Hello, everybody. So, Wayne, what are we reviewing today? Well, today we're reviewing the award-winning 1990 comedy, Death in Brunswick. Please explain. Upon finding employment at a Greek restaurant, the reserved Carl Fitzgerald, Sam Neill, begins dating the much younger waitress Sophie, Zoe Carides. Just as things start looking good for Carl, an unexpected situation leads to the death of his shady co-worker, Mustafa, Nick Lathoris. And so he enlists the help of his friend, gravedigger Dave, John Clark, to dispose of the body but that's only the beginning of Carl's problems. Based on Boyd Oxlade's 1987 novel, Death in Brunswick was met with acclaim from local reviewers, including critic royalty David Stratton and Margaret Pomeraz, who each awarded the dark comedy four and a half stars out of five. But Kendall, did you just die for Death in Brunswick? (laughs) Did I die for this movie? Hmm, yes. No, I've been, like, (laughs) racking my brain trying to think up the best way to kind of summarise my initial review and thoughts on this film. Because there, for me, as a whole, there were a lot of parts that I really enjoyed. But I feel like, for me, the writing, there was some kind of... I don't know. For, I don't know. Unless it was just me because I was watching it like late at night. Maybe I wasn't fully conscious, but I, I thought I was. I don't know. But the writing <laughs> just kind of felt a bit. It's like they did. They they didn't go out of their way to really feed the audience directly of how things were connected and who you, certain characters were and why certain things were happening the way they were. And I, which is fine because you know you don't want to you want to force feed your audience all your information. You should you know let them figure things out for themselves. I suppose. But for me, I kind of had to do a lot of figuring out. I don't know if it's just me. There were certain scenes. Just I was just wondering like. Like later in the film, you know, you find out that Carl is, you know, he's going through a separation, getting divorced. I mean, I I think it gets it gets mentioned probably halfway through the film. But then it, you know, comes to a head at the end, obviously, when Sophie finds out in a really unceremonious fashion that pissed me off. (laughs) (laughs) But then I was just, you know, so I, I did some reading like online just to clarify certain things and. Carl's mother moves in with him after the divorce, was my understanding, because I was like, okay, why 
after after Carl's all like, oh crap, they're gonna, you know, they think I they they think I bombed the the club. They're coming after me. They're gonna kill me, Mum. We gotta go. We gotta go. And they pack bags and then they go to this new house, this different house. And I was like, what is what house is this? I was. I was confused and it looked it looked like another home and it turns out it was you know actually his mum's house and I'm like why is the mum living with him in the first place it just didn't it I don't think it was made very clear as to the reason for that like there was it was never really explained and I don't know if that's the point of it like it's not supposed to be a big deal but for me it kind of it was a bit jarring for me mm. unless unless I've just completely misinterpreted it which is something that is bound to happen at some point in life. Um, but, but yeah, I don't know. I just, I just felt like if they had of certain scenes, if things had been explained a bit clearer and that would have been nice. And I, and one of my other kind of little gripes that I had with the film was the fact that, uh, a lot of the conflict, it's not forced, but it's just, I feel like if conversations were had, or if you know certain things were said by certain characters, conflict. Most of this conflict could have been avoided. I mean, <laughs> granted that <laughs> that freaking bouncer Laurie was always going to be a douchebag, and I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> he probably didn't deserve that grisly end that he got. But yeah, that's fine. But like certain things, just like Mustafa's untimely demise, the fact that. Like at the end, just how I mentioned about how Soph finds out about Carl being still married. I didn't like June. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like June was a problematic character for me, but I guess it's just the way she's written as this like headstrong kind of uh, woman who's tough and maybe not so easy to get along with and just makes me wonder why Dave was with June. But then the, I just hate, I hate when that happens. Like June is like, yeah, you know, you should probably tell her you're still married. And I'm like, that is not your business. Why are you what, like, and the fact that she doesn't get reprimanded for sticking her nose in Carl's business. Carl and Sophie have only been dating a few days. Who's to say that Carl was, you know, what he would have eventually told her. I mean, it, He's still getting to know her. I mean, despite saying that he's in love with her, they both fall hard and fast, and it's and it's believable because of their chemistry. Because Zoe Caridis and Sam Neill have some amazing chemistry in this film. It's completely believable, and I really loved watching the two of them on screen. But I just hated the fact that just June butted in like that. But then the way Carl handles it, like he doesn't. He could have said straight away, "We're separated," hmm. uh, to put Soph at ease. But then he waits a beat. And then waits for Dave and June to leave the kitchen table and then tries to talk. And then Sophie's just so distressed, obviously, she just runs from the room. And I suppose that can be explained away as like, you know, Carl's character. He's not really the most confident type of guy. Like he's a bit of a hot mess, as we see throughout the entire film. But he's very earnest and very like very, I don't know, he has this kind of innocence to him for someone who's a lot older than Sophie. Sophie seems to be so much more sure of herself, but I think you can, yeah, you can kind of take that, knowing that about Carl's character, you can go, okay, well, I guess maybe that makes sense as to why he would handle it that way. And I'm sure, yeah, they figure it out in a, you know, a, a brief argument that they have outside, which the highlight for me was Dave and June watching through the window <laughs> <laughs> while they were doing the dishes. That was great. But yeah, there was just a few moments like that that just kind of frustrated me in terms of the, of, of all of that. And then the, yeah. And then the, like the gang wars going on was, was, was interesting. I mean, I kind of liked how the film 
did go in directions I didn't expect it to go, which was kind of nice. And I enjoyed the fact that, um, like, you know, you, you're sitting down to watch this movie. It's called Death in Brunswick. There's going to be a death of some kind. And I, in the first, in the opening, you know, moments of the film, Carl wakes up to find his mother with her head in the oven. And you're like, <laughs> oh, oh, okay. So this is, this is, we're getting right into the action. Awesome. But then she cut, she pops her head out and she's fine. And he, like, he relaxes and it was... I thought that was funny, but I like how the movie kind of kept you guessing like when the actual kind of death was going to happen. But then it just turned out to be a lot of death <laughs> by the time the credits were rolling. But yeah, I think overall, like I enjoyed it more than I didn't enjoy it. But I, for me, it wasn't without its um, problems. Yeah, that's pretty much my initial thoughts, I think. Phil, what did you think? This film had a lot of potential, I think. And yet, I was not a fan of it in the long run. Oh, okay. It actually reminded me a lot of A Fish Called Wanda. Ah. Uh. In the sense that it's got this, this, this lowly protagonist who's just trying to get by and uh, get through his version of life and gets muddled up in this, this, this thing that, that's... You know, bigger than the both of us, as they say. And for me, the thing that grated me the most was it was trying to do this dark humour, this 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 dark put-down humour, which the British actually do very well, as I've spoken about before on this podcast. But it also tried to put too much Australian larrikinism into it. This will sound really weird, but to me, they didn't... They didn't put him down enough. They didn't put Carl down into the gutter enough. And I know that sounds insane because, you know, he has no job. He's he's getting divorced. He lives with his mother. His house is a... But that to me was almost too... Almost a, a, a stock standard. It was almost too sort of... Oh, what is the most put down we can have? Where to me... It almost it wasn't enough for who his character was, for what was happening with him, for what the movie was looking for. There wasn't enough of a struggle per se. And actually, I think also because of the fact that Carl almost always was whining or letting people walk over him, and there wasn't a point of return for it for me. Everything just sort of happened to him. Even him with his, you know, religious uh, reckoning and going and getting the girl and all that. It was all far too happened to him, not happened because of him. Right. And so to me, that that just didn't feel like there were any stakes. Okay. And there, yeah, again, on top of what you were saying, Kendall, where... I've always been one for the whole, oh, well, if they just had certain conversations. And that's always bugged me as a thing because on one hand, the answer to that is, well, it's a comedy. That's the that's the point. Yeah. But I'm like, yeah, but if your comedy really is based on people not saying stuff, not speaking up. And again, part of it is also this idea of hindsight. How many times have we sat there and gone, oh, I should have just said so-and-so. Mm. Yeah. So I, I get that it also plays on that idea, and it's hard to trans... I've always found that difficult, 
translating that to film because people watching a film have got that hindsight almost instantly because we are not in that moment. And so it is very, it's very easy for us to go, oh, I'd do this. It's very easy from our couch to sit there and play the I'd do-isms. Yeah. But it also, because of that fact, because that's a thing that happens, I do find it a bit of a, okay, you kind of know, this is something we've known for a very long time, even when this was made, we've known that people do this, so what other ways could this happen? What other ways, instead of it being something where, oh, well, if he'd just spoken up, because, again, he he speaks up just enough for me not to believe he's a coward. Right. And that's partly what I mean as well by he he needs to be even more in the dirt because he's got too much of that... Aussie larrikin bravado just lingering in the background for me to go, yeah, sorry, you'd, you'd actually stand up here. You'd, you'd maybe not be the full-on hero, but and, you know, you might get beaten down, but you need to lose that for me to truly believe that you are where this film wants you to me to believe you are. Yeah. Again, for me, it just felt too much like A Fish Called Wanda without it was trying to be that style of comedy not fish called wonder itself obviously but it was trying to play that sort of beat down comedy but keep that aussie spirit sort of thing and the two don't mix they are two very different comedies again for me that's actually why something like the castle works because you've got this lower class middle class family who feel that they've got it all so they actually feel higher than their station and fight bigger powers with this optimism and trumped up feeling of righteousness that fits beautifully because it is taking people who think they are up at the same level of these other people even if they're not but they are justified because they do not believe otherwise and the audience can see that. This doesn't quite hit the reverse of that. The fact that he's trying to better himself, the fact that he's, he shows these little hints of, but that it's never fully, truly realised. It's I mean, even the fact that his whole plan of, I'll get Yanni... But he had to be kidnapped for that. Everything happens to him. Yeah. And never because of him. Yeah, okay. Wayne, how about yourself? I have a sneaky suspicion you're going to absolutely rail against everything I've just said. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Philip, this might be a surprise, but I actually fall in between what I'm sensing your thoughts are and... Kendall's thoughts are. So I I feel like I'm in between both of you here. Okay. I think when looking at a film like Death in Brunswick, we have to look at the time that it was made and put this into context. And I appreciate that this might be a bit difficult because I don't even know if either of you were born (laughs) when this movie was made. I was one year old. (laughs) 
we were both very tiny babies. <laughs> yes, yes. And just to put it out there, I was young. I was young too. <laughs> so, so I do. I so look. I had to go back and fact check and research. It's not like I'm like, oh yes, I remember this. This was in my heyday. Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> okay. So this film was made probably like very late eighties. The the novel it's based on was made in eighty seven. The author and director worked on this together in terms of building the screenplay. And it was released late 1990 and had its wide release in Australia early 1991. So this is released just after Paul Keating, our Prime Minister at the time, said what is perhaps one of his most famous lines ever, which is the recession we have to have. Mm. And so putting this into context, look, Australia's been prosperous through the 80s, and now we're starting a new decade, and suddenly things aren't going so great. So, Phil, while I appreciate that Carl as a character wasn't down on his luck enough, in your opinion, perhaps for the time, he was an excessive example of what down on your luck meant. Uh. Not in terms of just the fact that he was unemployed up to this point, that he's gone through a separation, that his mother has felt compelled to move in with him to sort of help him sort out his life because she is quite a critique of the way he lives. I mean, it is an absolute pigsty, yeah? Yeah. So this is quite excessive. Even people down on their luck still have general hygiene standards, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And we see that Carl isn't himself quite mature. He is a man-child, a kid-old, whatever you want to label him, because he just doesn't have his shit together. And like how you've been alluding to, even the way he responds to things, it is almost quite childlike or innocent-like. So it's like he's been probably wrapped in cotton wool his whole life, has probably been, you know, the, the wife that he's now separated from has probably done all of the hard yards in terms of providing for him or making sure that the home is perfect so he hasn't had to lift lift a finger. I mean, I think if we look into it, and it's not explored at all in the film, but just even thinking about Carlin breaking down his character, we can probably see why she left him. And I'm calling it now, she left him, not the other way around. Uh, So I think think those things sort of become clear if you really need to, to look into them. In saying that, I also feel that the film does not go far enough in certain regards. I agree with you, Philip, that it has a lot of potential, and I don't think this potential is realised nine out of ten times. So I feel like they portray Carl in a certain way or his lifestyle, like, perfectly fine. But for me, where it falls flat is the humour isn't pushed enough. And perhaps this is me with more of a contemporary mindset of the sort of dark humour that I like to engage in and that I like to, to, to write and seek out and, and be involved in, is that it really should push a lot of limits. The film does it at one stage for me, and I'm going to talk about that later. But to give an example, the scene where Mustafa is accidentally killed the altercation, the fight happens, you know, it it happens really well. It plays out really well. But for me, it just ends too abruptly. Mm. 
Yeah. I feel like especially because it's a comedy where things are exaggerated and things are extreme, I feel like more could have been done with that. And I think the same could be said with the altercation that Clock has with Laurie as well. I mean, you've got that beautiful potential for it to escalate when Sophie gets involved and, you know, and it's like this two against one and and then, you know, Yanni comes and, and all of this. But it just doesn't go there for me. So... I feel like that John Ruane and Boyd Oxlade do some really interesting things with this screenplay that is adapted from Oxlade's novel, but again, doesn't go too far enough. One of the things that I think it touches on really well is the clashing communities between ethnic groups. So here we've got Greeks and Turks who have a very long history in their motherlands of not getting along very well. And we can Mm. see the ramifications of that by bringing this cultural history into a multicultural society. Because one of the things with a multicultural society is that you bring so many beautiful cultural elements with you. You bring all this gorgeous diversity, new foods, new languages, new fashions, just new human beings, and it's absolutely gorgeous. Mm. But human beings are complex, so you also bring on historical baggage as well. And through Mustafa's death, reignites those tensions and accidentally, essentially, triggers a gang war (laughs) between quite a few shady characters. And Carl is never really up to that level of, of, I suppose, standing up to them, or even really just standing up for himself. If I want to point out what I think is probably the biggest flaw in this film, and I can't believe I'm saying this because I never thought I would ever say this. <laughs> oh. It's the casting of Sam Neill. Oh. Oh. Yeah. For me, I think that that's actually the biggest flaw for me. He has his moments where he hits a lot of great cues. A lot of mics are wonderful. But I just found him, for this world that has been built, you know, this excessive world of gang battles, of unemployment, of being down on your luck, of just trying to win the girl of your dreams, I find his character way too dry. So I think for the role of Carl, if you're going to be a kid alt, if you're going to be a man-child, I think that needs to be pushed up a lot more. As opposed to just, a, oh, yeah, whatever, okay, I'm being really passive in regards to everyone and, and, and so forth. We feel like that there is some sort of redemption when he has the interaction with Sophie's father at the end of the film, is the worse off for it, but still sort of gets the girl in the end, and you know he will continue to suffer because of the character he is. But you feel like he hasn't really had this growth or change, mm-hmm. and I think that's because his personality traits aren't accentuated enough. I don't find him charming in the regard that some kidults can be. If we think about adults, especially men, who behave like children in popular culture, just look at Joey Tribbiani, played by Matt LeBlanc in Friends, for example, there's this charm. You can see this attraction. And, for example, Joey Tribbiani, and I know it's a different medium and it was made a few years after this, but he is always down on his luck. He never has money. 
but he still has this amount of charisma and charm that sees him get through. And we can mm. see that he will probably never reach the, the highs and the career goals and the life goals that he wants to because of the type of personality he is. But we want him to succeed because he's so likable. And I didn't quite get that with the character of Carl. And I wonder if he was played by a different actor if that would have been different because we've seen Sam Neill in a lot of wonderful films and we see how that dryness, if you will, or that really subtle humor, that really subtle performance works brilliantly. But I wasn't quite convinced this time round. He is overshadowed by John Clark as Dave in every single scene, but Dave is written in a way that that's just, is how it is. But again, John Clark has a very sharp tongue, a background in comedy. Comedy is his thing. And we can see how somebody who knows how to work with the material can really bring that to light. Zoe Caridis, for example, probably isn't as seasoned as a comedian, but she's got this energy that comes out that you really love, Sophie. You really like her. She's got some quirks. She's gorgeous. She's smart. She is self-motivated. She works hard. She has these elements that are just really likable and accessible. And I feel like that even though we could say, well, look, Carl is supposed to be this loser and he's not supposed to be accessible. And, you know, we're just supposed to feel sorry for him just because, for me, that's not enough. And... There's a lot of effort put here into emphasizing uh, how dismal his existence is. I love the way that this film is dressed. I love the set dressing. I love the overall look of this world. For me, though, I'm not a big fan of the way Ellery Ryan photographed the film, especially the interiors, but I can see what they were going for. So there's a lot of these visual cues that are emphasizing that Clark isn't really the most successful type of person in the world in any regards at all. He's a loser, I suppose. But you can have lovable losers that we really want them to win. So I feel like any likability from Carl came because of Sam Neill, but any restrictions in him sort of really being this character that we could really grab hold of is probably because of the way that Sam Neill has been directed to play the role. They're my initial thoughts here. Now, we seem to be quite critical of Death in Brunswick, but surely (laughs) there's one or two highlights for us, or maybe none, I don't know, could be a first. (laughs) (laughs) Could be, anything goes. Kendall, was there a, a particular moment or line or performance that really stuck out to you that was a positive for Death in Brunswick? Yes. Okay. So <laughs> basically anytime John Clark was on screen for mm-hmm. me was when I was enjoying the film the most. His delivery of the dialogue, <laughs> the just <laughs> that just true blue Aussie kindness to him. Like just, you know, I mean, when we first meet him, he's wearing a blue wife beater, like just <laughs> really just feels like you're blue collar Aussie. And I, I kind of liked like it, just the way he would bounce off Carl 
with what he would say was just quite good, quite enjoyable. I yeah, I do agree that yeah, John Clark definitely overshadows Sam Neill mm-hmm. when they're on screen. I feel like he's the way for some reason the way he is like his presence in the scene or the way he's carrying himself, the way he the way he speaks, like I said, like I just feel like yeah, it definitely does kind of make him like all your your eyes go to him. Like if you're looking at both Carl and Dave in a scene, you're you're focusing on Dave. Um, and that's because of John Clark and how great he is. Yeah, so I and it's funny because I've seen like the cover of the the DVD for this film mm-hmm. for you know a lot a lot at work and and it's the two of them leaning up against either a fence or a car covered in all of the mud and soot and god knows what else <laughs> after they've been to the cemetery and I was like oh okay this seems like it's going to be like a buddy mm. kind of uh, misadventure kind of dark comedy. Um, which is what I was expecting going in, but then I was just like, oh, okay, <laughs> Dave's not in it as much as I would like. But yeah, but when he is on screen, he's he's great. So I really would have loved the film if it had been more the the two of them getting up to mischief together, I guess. Or like, you know, I, I, I love the dynamic of Carl being this, like I said earlier, hot mess, and then Dave kind of being the stalwart friend who isn't exactly reluctant to help him, but will help him regardless of how he feels or regardless of how June feels. And June makes it abundantly clear from the first time you meet her that she cannot stand Carl and doesn't like him around at all because she knows it means trouble for Dave. I mean, she's not wrong, but yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. But yeah, I just would have liked to have seen more of their dynamic in the film, um, kind of carrying not carrying the story, but like, you know, just as a constant, I think that would have been really cool. But I, but what we do get is really great. And my favorite scene of the whole film had to be in the cemetery, uh-huh. despite, despite <laughs> how, despite how morbid it is, despite how um, stomach churning parts of it is. <laughs> yeah, it was very graphic in, in, you know, a couple of those moments there, I felt, which is totally fine because it, it's only a, you only see you know a quick little shot of Dave stomping in that poor woman's skull. <laughs> that's that's mid decomposition, <laughs> but it just kind of made me go, oh god, okay. But I but I think it kind of worked well with the whole scene, and I just and I love the the call and response of Carl, Dave, Carl, Dave, <laughs> like they're calling out to each other as da- Dave's in the in the Dave's in the grave. <laughs> Yeah, and Carl's Carl's gone to get the the crowbar and the shovel and everything. Yeah, I loved I loved that whole sequence and I loved how how squirmish Carl was and the way Sam Neill portrayed that was really great and the, and just even even before getting to the cemetery like the 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 initial gathering of Mustafa's body and I loved the comedy that Dave brought to those moments and how Sam Neill was able to really show us how it turned off Carl was and how how nauseated he was and, and how, I loved how Dave was like you could at least put your seatbelt on and then you, the car the car goes past and he's out the window trying like chucking oh uh, yeah it was that was great yeah so those those moments for me were were highlights and then as I mentioned earlier I, uh, I really really loved the chemistry between Sam Neill and Zoe Caridis like just their their courtship just. It just was so, I mean, I was like, oh, okay, we're, we're having sex on the first date. No worries. You only live once, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, like I, it was still, it was still, like I said earlier, it was believable. It was convincing to me, despite me after 
listening to both of you, Phil and Wayne, talk about Carl and his character and bringing up things that I kind of actually agree with uh, in terms of Sam Neill's casting, maybe, and the way Carl is as a character and how they probably could have gone more into certain areas of his personality. I can forgive that just for how good those two are together on screen. I just, mm. I, for, for me, it really, I love just the the kind of like the the moment where they're you know they're in in the lounge room and you know and then they 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 start kissing and it's all romantic and and nice and then but then like it comes to the part where they're actually going to have sex and they're getting undressed but both of them then become so self conscious in the moment like it it reminds us a of Carl's childlike nature, clearly, the fact that he hasn't fully grown up, you know, he's a big kid kind of thing. And then it also makes you remember how young Soph is Mm -hmm. as well, despite the fact that she portrays such a, a wise kind of like she's she's got herself figured out even though she's only 19 yeah i I love that that vulnerability and it was it felt very authentic to me very real that whole that whole sequence and then you know i was just laughing when (laughs) they're they're getting it on and we're getting images of greek orthodox religion (laughs) on the wall and everything which I, i i thought was i thought was a nice touch but yeah i think those were probably my my favorite things about death in brunswick phil what were yours I'm going to jump on the uh, John Clark bandwagon here and say, yeah, he was one of the few elements of this movie that I really enjoyed. And the funny thing is, that sort of larrikinism, that sort of humour, if the other characters had been brought up to that level, I think we would have had a really good Aussie movie on our hands. And... Even Sophie, uh, Zoe Caridis, is beautiful in her, her, her performance. And she does an absolutely uh, beautiful job in this film. I really love where this movie could have gone and what it was aiming for. But again, I just think it, it didn't quite hit it. But end of the day, absolutely loved Dave and Sophie. And how about you, Wayne? What what did you enjoy? Again, there uh, look probably weren't a lot of highlights for me this time round, but if I had to pick a favourite moment from Death in Brunswick, it would have to be the cemetery scene where Dave is making room for Mustafa. <laughs> for me, that scene just really epitomises dark comedy and the type of Australian humour that I was looking more for. But I found that that whole scene was just perfect. And you know what? It could have actually even gone further, particularly once Carl goes back into the hole (laughs) to try to help Dave out because he's injured himself. But what we get is absolute comic gold and it just works so well. Uh, It it made me squirm. It made me laugh. I wanted to look. I didn't want to look. And again, these are the hallmarks of a great dark comedy. So I think that that whole scene did it beautifully. And this for me is where the Dave and Carl dynamic actually worked really well. Because Dave is taking charge, Carl's really reluctant, but, you know, they they get the job done together. And I believe that that particular scene 
is considered quite a classic and a highlight in Australian cinema. It's not one that I've actually seen before, but when you mm. sort of read about the film, this is the scene that everyone says, well, it's kind of the signature scene of the film because it is so effective. Yeah. If I had a favourite line, one that really made me chuckle a lot, is when Carl and Sophie are making love. And Carl has a line, some something to the effect of why didn't I know you last year or, 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 you know, a few years ago? And Sophie has the great line of, oh, I was probably in school. Yeah. (laughs) And I just love how, you know, their uh, interaction together there is so beautifully awkward because it is that awkwardness of making love for the first time where she's embarrassed for him to see her body and he's the same, so they have the sheets cover them uh, and then that line comes up and then we cut to the gorgeous greek orthodox religious imagery as well so again these are one of the choices that john ruane does really well just his use of imagery particularly in that scene like that whole scene was really Mm. good but sophie's explanation (laughs) as to why they really hadn't met until today (laughs) was absolute comic gold for me Uh, and if i had to pick a performance that i particularly loved look you can't go past John Clark. Mm. He is absolutely fantastic here. He never misses a beat. And he's got great rapport with everyone that he shares the screen with. Uh, not only that, he also steals the scene whenever he's on the screen. So, yeah, they, they were my highlights for this particular film. But it's time now that we deliver our, our final verdicts and scores Kendall, over to you. Yes. Okay. So, Death in Brunswick. Yeah, listening to all of you guys talk, because it, it bring, brings back certain points that I want to add on to my initial statements, and I thought I'd bring them up with the summary, because I've got a couple of more little nitpicky things to point out. Just what I was talking about earlier with the, the characters, uh, the conflict being created for no, almost, not for no reason, but just like, you know, conflict could have been avoided quite easily in a lot of scenes. There's just a couple of interactions that I, I, I didn't like and didn't, I don't know, they just kind of frustrated me. So like, for example, Carl's frantic begging of Dave to help him with Sophie, like after, you know, after the incident at the, the club with Laurie and Yanni and Carl and Sophie get away and they go to Dave's house for sanctuary, basically, and Sophie ends up staying there for a couple of days because, you know, her father is very upset with her. And after Carl has to go home and, you know, him and Dave have this sort of confrontation at the front gate and Carl's all frantic and stuff and he's just rambling about what he's got to do. He's like, got to get money, got to get a car. Dave, you've got a car. I can. And I'm like, mate. You, the amount of stuff you've just put Dave through, and you, he's gone to bat for you, and you're and now you're you're still just saying all these things. You're thinking out loud. You're expecting him to to show up for you again and again. And I'm like, I think it's. I'm glad that Dave stood his ground and was just like, I'm done with this. Like you're, you know, you're, this is abuse of our relationship mm-hmm. essentially. Like I really, I'm really glad that Dave uh, said that because for me, uh, Carl in that moment was just. He just needed I feel like Dave should have slapped him across the face to be honest. He just needed a good slap <laughs> to get him to shut the hell up and focus cuz you know Dave says like you know there's nothing you can do about anything now. Go home, sleep it off. 
think about it in the morning. Like it's, it's and he didn't, and he completely ignores him. Doesn't even acknowledge the fact that Dave says that. And it just really, yeah, it really kind of ticked me, <laughs> ticked me off. But and just and just to piggy, uh, piggyback off that. <laughs> how I mentioned earlier about June revealing how Carl is still married. Sophie isn't exactly forthcoming about this arranged marriage with Yanni. <laughs> and I don't know if this is like a, uh, you know, the, the arranged marriage just happens to have come about during the couple of days that Carl's been there, but I highly doubt that, especially because, you know, she talks about how her father paid for everything that you know, ceremony, reception, food, catering, all X, Y, Z stuff that goes along with, you know, the father of the bride paying for a wedding. And, and just the fact that, you know, there seems to be some kind of hypocrisy that's not addressed in the, in the film in that sense. And that's fine because you can chalk that up to Sophie being so young and being so under the thumb of, of not just her father, but, you know, this tradition of this arranged marriage and the fact that, you know, she, this is also her job. It's just so many things going on. So, and it was probably something, again, that would have come up eventually. But it just kind of pisses me off that, like, she doesn't, you know, this trope that constantly comes up in romantic films, you know, these secrets that people keep that they don't want to reveal to the other person in, in case it will ruin the relationship before it can even get off the ground. And as soon as <laughs> as soon as there's kind of some conflict with Kyle and, and Yanni and Laurie and the, and the club and the, you know, the... The, the the rival uh, gang kind of bombing the place and well actually even I think it's just before that but but yeah well, yeah when Carl is trying to confront Sophie and say hey we need to talk and hang out and stuff whatever and Sophie just you know wants to drop him and doesn't give an explanation or anything and I just the it just was very weak source to me just the the way that she did it I feel like the dialogue wasn't strong enough to really can like because you know there's always those moments where they're like you know they avoid telling the truth then and there but I just thought it was a really lazy way of doing it because you had as an audience member you kind of had to go okay what's going on because at that point I don't even think I knew about the arranged marriage I don't even know if that part had been revealed at that point so I just for me like I said earlier in on my initial thoughts there was just a lot of kind of putting the pieces together I had to do myself in terms of some of this. And then that goes on with Carmel's attitude towards Carl. Like I really liked Carmel as this like best sort of best friend character to Sophie. I thought she was really good, but she was inconsistent in her attitude towards Carl. I felt that it didn't always exactly line up with how Sophie was for me. Like Sophie's already said that she doesn't want to see Carl anymore. And then Carl finds Carmel in the in the ladies room and I really like that exchange the way that was framed with like just those two shots of Carl's head in the window and then the perspective looking at Carmel I thought that was really uh, I liked that it was engaging for me anyway but yeah I didn't it, it, it was nice that Carmel was like okay you could understand why she was like okay well clearly Sophie doesn't want to see you anymore I'm gonna back my best friend here and tell you to piss off but then, you know, Carl talks her around and, and that kind of tracks because it seems like Carmel is this nice kind of person, nice kind of woman, character, friend, all of that. Maybe she thinks Carl could be all right. So she gives him a second chance and then they arrange the little talk at the at the pool. But then Carmel at the pool is just straight away, just like, so nah, I'm done with you, Carl. Like, I'm not going to... You know, you know, you've made her cry. Are you happy now? Like she was, she's just so 
I don't know. I, I just, it, for me, it didn't fit how pessimistic she was, how like uh, negative she was towards Carl. Cause yeah, I mean, I don't know. It just didn't, it didn't fit for me. It didn't make sense. And then just to wrap things up with my, my thoughts before I give a score. Sorry if I'm rambling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the the jump from the religious epiphany, if you will, uh, that Carl has, I will agree it does come a bit too late in the game. But then the payoff of that and the fact that he's like, oh, I can be forgiven for murder. For You know, it's totally fine. Like he, basically the almost like the priest tells him, yes, you can kill people. Go ahead. Go ahead, my child, do it. And then he just, the fact that he just jumps straight to like, I'm going to kill my mother after just one conversation of, I can't remember which character it was that that, that has a conversation with him about why, I, I don't know why you haven't like gotten rid of her already or something, but I don't think they were fully serious. And then Kyle's just like, oh, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to kill her. And it just kind of seemed, I don't know, it just seemed to be this weirdly sinister side to Carl that didn't make sense to me. And it wasn't fully sinister or anything, but it just didn't... I don't know, it was just weird because he never seemed to have... Yes, he kind of hated the fact that his mum was there and so present and kind of interrupting his adult life. But for me, he didn't seem to uh, you know, have such animosity towards her that he would be so willing to jump from I'm fine with this to I'm going to kill my mum. Like, I don't know. It just it was too much. I mean, the scene was amusing anyway, like just as on its own. But I just I feel like there was a disconnect between that and the rest of the film. And then the whole fact that mid, you know, attempting to poison her, essentially, she she gives the revelation of, you know, there's that $100,000 trust that is for Carl. And then he's trying to find out why there is this trust and why. And then, we and you know, and then he's yelling at her and then she has the heart attack or stroke. But I was just like, what? Are we not going to, are we not going to resolve this? Like, are we not going to find out why the, the mum... Like, why did she move in with Carl? Why did why is she holding on to money? I mean, I'm guessing she's this greedy person, and you know, she does talk about how she, you know, is disappointed in Carl and how he's turned out. But I don't know. I just it just all didn't exactly fit as neatly as I think the writers and the director were hoping for it to uh, to fit for me. But yeah, I did like like one final thing I did like though I, was the uh, how just the multicultural aspects of the film really kind of reflected and, and reflect Melbourne as such a diverse community. Just even in this isolated area of Brunswick and Coburg that we see in the film, I just really enjoyed how authentic that was because you know Melbourne is one of the most multicultural places in the whole country, and I really liked the realism of that and how that was portrayed in the film and how there's like these references to Carl's like uh uh well Sophie says about how she they think she's a slut and then Carl's like this is Australia I just I don't know I I really liked how it just those kind of themes were were present throughout the whole film and what makes Melbourne Melbourne what makes Australia Australia and and this is yeah I thought that was very accurately done well done so if I had to give this a score out of five, I would probably give it a three out of five. Phil, what are your final thoughts? I've struggled with this film. I struggled with the character development. I struggled with the characters themselves. So John Clark as Dave really is where this movie should be. And I'm not sure 
with Sam Neill whether this is actually a poor performance by him or whether this is actually him. Because again, we see him later in other films doing these amazing jobs. So is this actually him outshining everyone in a film where he needs not to be outshining? And so the whole thing gets diluted and it actually warps back around on himself, thus creating a poor performance. I can't quite wrap my head around that just yet. And I know that sounds like a silly notion. Oh, you, you performed so well that it was bad. But if you are performing in such a manner that it's no longer fitting within the film, then you're no longer performing in a good manner, if that makes any sense. Although my gut does suggest that this was just a rough movie for him. Because just like everything we've said, that he doesn't commit enough to the character, that the the character's wishy-washy, flippy-floppy, a lot of that obviously can come down to directing and writing, but ultimately, at the end of the day, a good actor will make good choices to create good art. Obviously, there are caveats that abound to that statement and it is not one I stand by indefinitely but (laughs) most Australian films to me and again I'm putting Australian films on a huge pedestal by the in this idea but they to me always at least feel put together and it's I think I've, I feel that it's because they generally don't have a budget they don't have a billion producers behind them so, unlike Hollywood where, you know, you, you can see sometimes in Hollywood films that there's an idea or a notion or a, a plot point that didn't go anywhere and it ended up on the cutting room floor and sort of got overlooked because there's a billion other things happening and there's so many committees that things have to go through that Australian film of this sort of area don't have to worry about as much so I've always felt that they are at least looked over well enough that you don't get a lot of these plot holes whereas this film it again just like you said Kendall where does the the mother's plot line go it's sort of it, it's there but it was almost an afterthought or it was almost yeah it's there because it's in the book we're here because we're here and that really, to me, uh, it, it then, because again, in a book, you've got a lot of, you've got pages to work with. In a movie, you've got your hour and a half, your two hours, three hours if you're ambitious with a budget. You don't have a lot of time to look at everything. And when things just put it in because it's in the book, then you start derailing from the book you start derailing from the original source unless you are able to put enough emphasis on everything it just it does not feel like it was thought out well enough and and that's i realize that this is a really harsh criticism for someone that is yet to make a uh, feature-length movie but (laughs) again we know what we like, we know what what works and what doesn't, and this really just 
did not come together in the slightest for me. It, it is a movie that should have been something that wasn't. One out of five for me. Oh. Wayne? Well. <laughs> <laughs> there are a number of things to really like about Death in Brunswick. It is a cult classic. The The book that it is based on is quite well loved for those who have read it. Also, it was written at a time when the author, Boyd Oxlade, needed money because he'd been unemployed for about nine years and felt like he could make money writing a book. I'm dumbfounded by that notion because nobody writes a book to make money these days. (laughs) Uh, When it came to making the film, the Australian government had changed, I guess, its feelings towards the Australian film industry and a lot of tax incentives were ripped away from it. So we now, from the beginning of the 90s, start to get Australian movies that are made on a lower budget and probably have less of a, of a release in terms of its market share. And Death in Brunswick is sort of, I think, the first key example of that. Because of the story that it is, that overall aesthetic, I think, suits the narrative. However, for me, this isn't really a narrative that I could fully come on board with. We've got some wonderful moments, which I've talked about, some flashes of brilliant humour and some wonderful visuals as well. Zoe Karides and John Clark are particular highlights for me in this film. Sam Neill is a really strong actor. He plays Carl really well, but we expect that from Sam Neill because he's such a phenomenal actor. However, what he offers the role and how director John Ruane envisions the role... There's a cohesiveness between them, but for me, it doesn't work in terms of what I want from a protagonist. So I also did struggle a bit with this movie. But again, there were some wonderful moments. One of the scenes that I did particularly like was when Carl and Sophie go to see the marsupials, <laughs> Howling 3, <laughs> in, in the <laughs> cinema. And one thing I can say is that if anyone has seen that film, they'll know that Death in Brunswick is a better film than that one. So... <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 wait. That's an actual movie? I thought they were taking the piss. No, that is an actual <laughs> movie, yes. So it is oh, It is wow. part three in the Howling franchise. I didn't know it was called The Marsupials. Holy crap. Yes, okay. set in Australia with an Australian cast as well. By memory, Damon Everidge even makes an appearance. Oh, wow. <laughs> Okay, cool. Uh, cool. So if you do source out uh, The Howling Part 3, keep your expectations incredibly low, especially if you've seen (laughs) the first film, which is a classic. Yeah, so I mean, look, hey, they walked out of a movie uh, that isn't as good as the one they're in. (laughs) (laughs) That, however, doesn't really say a lot. Yep. Flashes of effective comedy, some really good performances here. But for me, I couldn't get on board with this film completely. And it just wasn't a successful dark comedy for me. I predicted at the beginning of this podcast that I would fall in between (laughs) Philip and Kendall's (laughs) feelings about this film. And I was not wrong today. Uh, Death in Brunswick gets two out of five from me. (laughs) <laughs> oh. All right. 
I feel maybe I was too generous now. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe maybe Philip was too mean. Or maybe I'm just a fence sitter. <laughs> this is perfectly... Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, look, hey, mixed response from, from us yeah. for, for Death in Brunswick. So it's been a really interesting conversation. Overall, I'm sensing this isn't really a film that we would recommend our family and friends and listeners uh, watch during lockdown. But Kendall, what's a movie you would recommend for us to stream during lockdown? Yes. Well, uh, I have got a good film to recommend. I found myself on Amazon Prime a couple of days ago watching a movie by the name of Eighth Grade, and I couldn't recommend it enough. This is the uh, directorial debut of Bo Burnham. For those who don't recognize the name, he's an American comedian, YouTube personality, and this was the first his first feature, not only directing, but he wrote the screenplay as well. And it focuses on a, a teenage girl who is basically going through her final week of eighth grade before transitioning from what in America they call middle school into proper high school. And I was blown away. It's <laughs> visually gorgeous, like the way it's shot, the way the story is told. Elsie Fisher plays Kayla Day, the lead character, and the film, it's its her world and it's Kayla's interpretation of the world and how she sees it, and it is so authentic and so unbelievably wonderful and heartbreaking at the same time, because she's she herself is also a YouTuber, like she has a YouTube channel, and the film is framed by her putting up these basically motivational advice-giving videos about like how to be confident, how to put yourself out there in situations, how to do all this stuff, and she's coming across very confident, very natural in front of the camera. She has a nice kind of easygoing personality, even though every second word she says is like, but you know, if she's a <laughs> you know, ca- Californian teenager, it's going to happen. And that is kind of beautifully juxtaposed with these scenes of Kayla actually doing the thing in her life that she's trying to give advice on and it's the complete opposite she is this introverted girl she uh you know she gets the like they give all the class awards at the end of the year for their grade before they move on and she gets the quiet girl award and you know one of her one of the first lines in the film is like I what is it? It was something about her, like, you know, she's she's not she's not a quiet person. She just doesn't have anything to say. Like she just doesn't she just doesn't feel the need to, to speak up too much at school. And that's before you find out that she actually is super introverted and super like not awkward, but like her the way she carries herself socially is not she's very unique. Um, maybe slightly even on the spectrum, but like it's done in such a beautiful way and Elsie Fisher's performance is just yeah, captivating this this young girl who is who is the same age as her character at the time of filming as well. So she was also in the eighth grade at the time. I was blown away with this film, and it was so raw and emotional. And I related to her quite a bit in certain scenes and certain moments, and it was just beautiful. I highly recommend checking out Eighth Grade. I'm gonna give it a five out of five easily. It's it's awesome. Ooh, wow. Yeah, Philip. Is there anything you would like to recommend for us during lockdown? Most certainly. I have got a mini-series, and I think I've mentioned it a couple of times in the past, but it's a mini-series from the 80s called The Anzacs. It's a mini-series that follows a 
fictional uh, unit of the 8th Battalion during the First World War. And it's just an absolutely beautiful rendition of Australia's full involvement in the Western Front of the First World War. It does get a little cheesy. It does get a little patriotic at times. It insinuates that we we single-handedly won the war or turned the tide against Germany. There's some truth in it. There's some myth in it. But overall, I found it was a beautiful place to start when trying to learn about Australia's other roles other than just Gallipoli in the First World War. At least for people that like to sort of go from... I watched a film, so I now want to go research more about the thing. Or even if you're just like, look, I just want something that gives me the the, the base information and, and, and so I've got a general knowledge about this is a really fun way to be introduced into the rest of the war from Australia's perspective. Uh, for example, you've got the Battle of Hamil, you've got... The uh, fact that it was the Australians that were able to turn the tide of the Hindenburg Line. It was the Australians who predominantly first came up with the idea of peaceful penetration. Although, again, the movie insinuates that it was a lot more of just the men on the line who did it. When, in reality, it was a lot of bigwigs trying out a new thing. But it definitely gives a better look into our wartime history as opposed to, oh, Australia fought at Gallipoli. So the Anzacs miniseries, it's got Paul Hogan in it. What more could you want? Uh, Hmm. I'd give that a four out of five. Nice. And Wayne. Yes. What would you like to recommend? Well, I revisited an Australian story that is really a classic now, and that is Rob Sitch's directorial debut, The Castle. And this was the first Mm. film from the team at Working Dog. And it is a gorgeous David versus Goliath story of one man taking on the big guns to try to prevent his home from being knocked down to expand the neighbouring airport and it's absolutely gorgeous. Daryl Kerrigan, as played by the wonderful Michael Caton, is now an Australian icon. <laughs> and some of his mm. catchphrases are now in <laughs> everyday Australian <laughs> lingo. Uh, it is yep. an incredibly charming movie. And what's really sweet about it is that Daryl is such a gorgeous Australian bloke that everything his family does just fills him with pride, even when they're not really worthy of praise. For example, he has one of his sons in prison, but that doesn't mean he loves him any less. And even though he is just this beautiful and wholesome human, it doesn't mean that he is a pushover either, because when you've got outsiders trying to come in and intimidate and bully him, he's the first to use foul language and to stand up against them and to really stand his ground. Uh, Look, it was a huge box office hit in Australia and New Zealand, and it's an incredibly sweet, endearing and enduring story. Four out of five from me for The Castle. Nice. 
thank you so much for joining us today. Yes. Thank you so much to everyone listening. And thanks for having me on again as a guest host. I love it. Anytime, Kendall. Anytime. But I suppose whilst we're still in lockdown, there's more movies to watch and review. So until next time. I've been a Philip Hunting. I've been a Kendall Richardson. And I've been a Wayne Stellini. And you've just experienced Fred Watch. Cue music! Dun 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 dun! Alright, that's it! That's it! We're done! It's over! And scene! Thanks so much, folks. That was a lot of fun. (laughs) Blooper reel! And just as things start looking good for Carl, an unexpected situation leads to the death of his shady co-worker Mustafa, Nick Lathoris. And so he enlists the help of his friend, Gravedigger, should be Gravedigger Friend. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me on that one. That's alright. I, I might begin that. Although for some reason, I, I kind of like the idea of Gravedigger Dave as a nickname for someone. <laughs> yeah, it's cool, <laughs> it just, huh? It, it kind of rolls off the tongue nicely. <laughs> okay, well, how about... Actually, if I just put a, uh, a comma there, that, that might actually work, hey? Of his yeah. friend. Grave Digger Dave. <laughs> that does roll off the tongue beautifully, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Like, at the end, just how I mentioned about how Soph finds out about Carl being still married um, from, oh, what, from what's, what's Dave's wife's name? I've forgotten it. June. Um, I didn't like June. <laughs> That's pretty much my initial thoughts, I think. Phil, what did you think? I was... I'll start that again. And I think the same way in terms of Louis. His name is Louis, isn't it? Laurie. Laurie. The bouncer. The bouncer. Yes, thank you. Yeah, Laurie. Because I wrote everyone's name except for Laurie's. <laughs> and we can mm. see the ramifications of that by bringing this cultural history into a multicultural society, because one of the things with the multi multicultural what the two groups here bring and Carl is in the middle and again through I'm forgetting everyone's name it's okay I've got it (laughs) and the other reason I kind of bring that up is because this is going to become the John Clark uh, uh, gravy train Um, it's very much um a, uh, sorry, I'm going to start that again because I've got an incoming call that's distracting me. No, I can't. That's okay. Do you need to take it, Phil? No, no, I don't. I don't. Okay. I just, it was beeping while I was trying oh, to talk. Oh, okay. No worries. Actually, um, well, sorry, Phil, while we've paused, do you mind if I just take a quick um, breather? Yeah, all good. Thank you for yeah. that. Sorry about that. You, you it's okay. <laughs> what did you say, young man? <laughs> Nothing, dear. <laughs> it's okay. Kendall will tell me later.
sort of bring a bit of that up as well is because I kind of no that's not what I was saying uh, yep, yep. yeah that's that is kind of what you were saying because then you were like I'm going to go on the John Clark gravy train or something yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't like yeah. the term gravy train it was not the what, what's the bandwagon. bandwagon bandwagon if the other characters had been brought up to that level I think we would have had a really good Aussie movie on our hands instead of yep. This sort of ugly mix of that sort of American... American. Uh, Dave Clark's character of... I would love to see more Sophie. Uh, uh, Zoe Cardiz. Carides. Carides. I wrote it down. Wayne wrote it down for me. Everything. Carides. Carides. You even said it. You even threw me a... Fucking bone by saying it. And I, was, <laughs> I was like, oh, awesome, thank you. I'll remember that. Nope. Caridis, Caridis. Even Sophie uh, being played by Zoe Caridis. No, we already know that, so. Again, I just would have loved to have seen more Dave. Even Sophie, uh, Zoe Caridis, is beautiful in her, her, her performance. And it's, again... Everyone that Sam Neill goes up against makes him look worse. And that shouldn't be for a Sam Neill movie. <laughs> yeah, um, that's fair. Again, and I don't, I don't actually know whether it's Sam Neill didn't do a good job. This is the other thing, though. <sighs> Phil? But... Just yes. a question. Do you want to save these for your verdict since this section is supposed to be after things you like? Yeah, probably. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll probably have to edit a lot of it out, to be honest, mate. <laughs> okay. 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 <sighs> I, I mean, you, you've, 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 you've mentioned, for example, like one of your last positive points was how much you liked um, Zoe Carides as Sophie. Um, yeah. Did, do you maybe want to just play off on that or... or, or yeah, yeah, we'll do. We'll do. <laughs> Look, I just have a lot to say and this format doesn't work as well for me as in my format. I, I just... know, sweetie, because then you can't see my... You can't see the look on my face screwing it up at you telling you to wind it up. Because <laughs> 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 I was like, because these points are really, really good, but I'm like, probably yeah. save them for your final verdict. <laughs> I've said them, I'm going to second guess myself in the final verdict. Okay. No, don't, don't, uh, don't. F- feel free to repeat some of these, or if there's anything that you want me to specifically edit in from this, I will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're Most like, damn it, it, Wayne, just when I nailed how to say Zoe Carides. Um, I hope I hope I haven't put you off too much though, mate. But I just wanted oh, to sort of put you in that I'm, direction. I'm now I've no idea where I am, but I'm just gonna have a crack at something. Yeah. Okay. Po- okay. Positive. Positive. <laughs> yeah. This will be some mighty editing for you though. So what I'm about to do. So I okay. No, no, that's okay. End of the day. Absolutely loved Dave and Sophie. Uh, what am I meant to throw to next? 
Yeah, Wayne, of course. <laughs> if I had to go for my favourite moment, it has to be the cemetery scene where yeah. <laughs> where Dave is is making room. <laughs> Priyani, if you like, <laughs> I you know this these are this is the type of dark humor that had me squirming, that had me laughing, uh, you know, having my hands over my eyes and looking through the gaps of my fingers. This is what I expect from an Australian dark comedy, and so this scene delivered it so beautifully. Again, it could have gone Wayne. further. Yes. Sorry, I'm so sorry. I'm pretty sure you said making room for Yanni. In he the did. Mustafa. I was going to leave it. Oh, it was Mustafa. That's right. What was that? I was going to just leave it to. Uh, I heard it too, but I was going to leave it to the end. Let you do your thing, and then say it just oh, so you m- do it. Maybe start again. <laughs> no, no, you're right. So I did. No, no, so you you're right. I did. Sound. I did say Yanni. Thank you. Not a problem. <laughs> sorry. I actually have Gypsy on my lap, and she's um, clawing at my chest every once in a while. Oh, <laughs> oh Gypsy. Kendall says hi, Jibs. Yes, I say hi. Hello. <laughs> Don't worry about the other one. <laughs> <laughs> they at least get a good, um, a good coherence. Uh, that's not the right word. What am I thinking of? Coherent. Good. The. Standard. Hmm. Philip, is there anything you would like to recommend for us during lockdown? Um, and quickly, before I go on, what did I do last week? What did I you do I last did, week? I know I did Star Wars the first week. Was it something to do? Was it something to do with Marvels? Yes, thank you. It was that cool. That's right. That's awesome. Okay. <clears throat> Most certainly. And this week again, I have something a little bit different. So. One of the things that a lot of people have gotten into during lockdown is gaming. And I highly recommend, I've actually got a game to recommend. And again, I know it's not a film, but Mm. I have a, definitely have a, (laughs) don't you give me that, uh, Wayne. There is a lot, a lot of stuff to get through. Um... All right, no, fair enough, fair enough. I'll start again. I'll go with the movie I was going to do. Have a whinge, why don't you? Just trying to bring a bit of diversity to this. I know. I mean, it's not... I mean, there's just so few films out there (laughs) to talk about about on a movie podcast. All right. All right. right. I hope you're putting this in the bloopers, if there is any. (laughs) I admire, I admire your uh, tenacity, Philip. You, you went, you went for it. Um. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> oh. So you've got the uh, Battle of uh, uh, Hamel. Hamel. Extended scene. I, touching on a couple of things there, I struggled to comprehend that this was released in 1990 and Jurassic Park was 1993 and just Mm. the leaps and bounds Sam Neill takes as an actor from that. Like if I, if I saw, if the last thing I saw 
Sam Neill in was this movie, and I was living as, you know, Jurassic Park, well, I was older when Jurassic Park was released, I'd go, wow, really? They chose him? <laughs> and I know I've sort of, we've all beaten that to death, but I was just, there was just something I wanted to say because I was just thinking about that because I was actually trying to think. I actually really like Sam Neill. I like him in The Dish. I like him yep. in Jurassic Park. I, I, I generally like him in everything that I see him in. And yet this. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I sort of bring this up is because I feel that we're kind of... I'm going to jump on the uh, John Clark bandwagon here and say, yeah, he was one of the few elements of this movie that I really enjoyed. And the funny thing is... That sort of larrikinism, that sort of humour, if the other characters had been brought up to that level, I think we would have had a really good Aussie movie on our hands instead of that sort of ugly mix of British Aussie humour which isn't quite moulding together. That British downer, that British, you know, that... that, trying for glory but being uh, dumped on from a very high height as I was saying before that that the castle where it's people who uh, feel they're in this high position really push themselves you know yes I don't have a lot but everything I've got is what I need and John Clark's character of Dave I think was actually the perfect place where this movie needed to be. Even if you had someone, the main character was more down on themselves from that, it needed to almost be more buddy cop, sort of, you know, buddy, buddy, Dave gave uh, uh, Carl the much more of that uh, uh, confidence. Those moments, as, as you've said, Kendall, where... Dave helps stand up for Carl and Carl gets that little bit of bravado because of Dave. They were the most fun moments for me. They were the moments that mm. really stood out to me. And it would have, I think it just needed that, even if we were going to have Carl as Carl, by the end he needed to be a Dave clone. He needed to have found that confidence within himself by the end of the film, even that part where Carl has the religious epiphany and they sort of hint at, oh, he's going to kill his mother. It kind of goes nowhere and it gets flattened and squashed almost instantly. Whereas again, if you look at something like A Fish Called Wanda, that was something that happened in the middle of that film. Mm. It's so that it becomes, you know, the the main character has this sort of idea and he does these things, but then the rest of that film is dealing with those consequences. Well, we've already had that part. Don't throw this at the end of the film. And again, I just would have loved to have seen more Dave. Even Sophie, uh, Zoe Caridis, is beautiful in her 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 performance and she does an absolutely uh, beautiful job uh in this film um just i i really love where this movie could have gone and what it was aiming for 
But again, I just think it, it didn't quite hit it. But end of the day, absolutely loved Dave and Sophie. Bonus content. Death in Brunswick was reviewed in 1991 on SBS Television's The Movie Show. We present an abridged version of the segment here in which critics David Stratton and Margaret Pomeranz discuss the black comedy to demonstrate how the film was received at the time and, compared to the views and assessments of the Fred Watch team, suggests that Death in Brunswick has perhaps not been able to maintain its impact out of the era and context it was made. Well, with the abandonment of a tax incentive scheme to stimulate the Australian film industry, we've seen films have a much more consistently high standard screening in cinemas over recent months. So does Death in Brunswick measure up? There's absolutely no doubt that the future of the Australian cinema lies in modestly budgeted but wholly original pictures like Death in Brunswick. This is a black comedy which isn't afraid to take risks, to shift moods, to push to the limit. Sam Neill, who I imagine commands fairly hefty fees these days, agreed to make this film because he loved the script. And he was absolutely right, because it gives him the best role of his career, next to Michael Chamberlain in Evil Angels. Anyway, he plays Carl, one of life's losers, a lazy, lustful, short-order cook who lives in disarray in the Melbourne suburb of Brunswick, and who's none too happy when his mother, Yvonne Lawley, moves in on him and starts nagging him to do something with his life. Well, he does something. He gets a job as a cook in a Greek restaurant, and he almost immediately finds himself sexually involved with Sophie, Zoe Carides, a teenage girl who works there. He also gets involved in a killing. Director John Ruane worked with novelist Boyd Oxlade on this marvellous film, which has been handsomely photographed by Ellery Ryan and designed by Chris Kennedy, and which has a lively music score by Philip Judd. You never know what's going to happen next in the film, and occasionally the outrageousness of it all takes the breath away. Sam Neill is splendid as the trouble-prone Carl, Zoe Carides brings great humour and sensuality to the character of Sophie, and John Clarke is terrifically funny as Carl's best mate, a gravedigger with a tart sense of humour. And I mustn't forget Deborah Kennedy as his very unhelpful wife. Well, this is a film which doesn't pull its punches, so ignore the hideous ad campaign, go and see it. How did you feel about it, Margaret? I loved it, and I think everybody ought to go and see it too. It's so funny. I think you ought to leave preconceived notions at the door of this one, walk into the cinema and sit back and just let it happen, because it is a very unusual Australian comedy. I think that goes for the Jaguar, it gets there. Uh, it's outrageously irreverent about a lot of things. I thought at one stage you, you were worried about the racial stereotypes. And well, I was actually until I talked to, to John and particularly to Zoe about it. And Zoe was, was I thought, very good talking about that. And, and that made me feel, OK, I, maybe I should... About, yes, yeah. I think so. The, I think there were so many good performances. Yvonne Lawley as the mother. Those yeah. scenes between Sam and, his, and the mother are just gorgeous. Yeah. I think there is one minor role that is not fantastic. And for me, that just sort of makes me not give it five out of five, which I think I'd love to do. I'm going to give it four and a half out of five. Right. Well, I, I think I'll give it the same four and a half out of five. But I must say it is one of the funniest Australian films that I've seen in quite a long time. Yeah. We welcome your thoughts on Death in Brunswick as well as this podcast via the Fred the Alien Productions social media pages or at fredthealien.productions at gmail.com.